0: Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm Robin. And I'm John. Together, we research and break down complex and timely topics facing our society, and we bring our findings to you every week. Our promise to you is to bring you honest analysis, backed by research, to skew our bias toward what can be factually supported, and to try to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. Naturally, we're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. But our goal isn't to convince you to think any certain way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that together we can discuss and address them in a thoughtful and beneficial way.
1: Because of the topics we cover, some of our episodes may get heavy, and some topics might seem divisive. But we believe that, even on these issues, common understanding can be found. And we hope those of you listening agree. We don't accept that the current state of society is the way it must be together through discussion and on common ground, we can build a better world for ourselves and future generations. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff.
0: Welcome to our fireside.
1: Washington, D.C., cherry blossoms, brutalist architecture, and most importantly, home of the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. Yes, Washington, D.C., the most important city on the planet, if you're American, and the most annoying city on the planet if you live literally anywhere else. Yes, that Washington, D.C., the location of the U.S. Capitol since time immemorial. Uh, Well, sort of. Actually, okay, not even, not even sorta. In fact, D.C. wasn't even the second capital of the United States, or third, or fourth, or fifth. Actually, D.C. is the eighth capital of the United States. Yep, eighth. And let me tell you, I went into this research thinking it was the third. Surprise!
0: Oh no, dear listener, the first capital of the United States was none other than Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I mean, okay, that one's not a big surprise, really. Anybody who's seen National Treasure has basically heard Nick Cage knowingly reveal that the original capital of the United States was there. Right now, we're talking about post-July 4th, 1776, when the Declaration of Independence was adopted.
1: Excuse me, ma'am. Excuse me. You? uh, I cannot allow such an insult to stand you I skipped it. You have edited my script. I did. You have edited this. That is unfair. The line goes, anyone who has seen one of the best movies in the world, National Treasure, has heard Nick Cage. All right. Now, you have no room to tell me that I am wrong in this because I happen to know what one of your favorite movies in the world is look i'm not gonna spoil it here but i know
0: i know i didn't say it was a bad movie i just didn't call it one of the best movies in
1: the world well you are objectively wrong anyway continue informing our listeners about washington dc the nation's capital oh by the way guys we kind of launched into this one without actually talking about it we're talking about statehood for washington dc this week
0: yeah. But I mean, um, if you clicked on this episode, you know what we're talking about because we put it in the right, title. It's,
1: it's right right there in the title. Yeah. yeah.
0: But we did just but, jump in straight with the history of Washington, D.C.
1: Yeah. That's where we're going to start. We're going to talk about the history a little bit, the history of the capital in general, because I think a lot of people don't know that D.C. isn't some sacrosanct, you know, handed down from God location and um sacrilege blasphemy i know i know i know and then we'll get into talking about you know why we're talking about statehood and some of the arguments for and against it anyway
0: yeah yeah yeah. sorry we'll get there get us
1: back to that history
0: right now we're talking about nick cage national treasure and the declaration of independence now you may remember that the declaration of independence was signed right in the middle of a little thing called the revolutionary war So by the end of 1776, British troops were closing in on Philadelphia, prompting the Continental Congress to do what all smart and God-fearing men do when facing down a superior army. Run away! Yeah, they fled. (laughs) Specifically, they fled to Baltimore, which served as the nation's second capital. And then after General Washington posed for a painting while crossing the Delaware, we do need to find the citation on that one. And defeated the British army at Trenton and Princeton, the British threat to Philadelphia diminished, and the Continental Congress returned to Philadelphia in March of 1777. That is until the British decided to have another go at Philadelphia, and then this time Washington couldn't hold them off, and they suffered a pretty catastrophic defeat at the Battle of Brandywine on September 11th, 1777, beginning to think that that date might be cursed at this point. Anyway... After that defeat, the Continental Congress pulled up their stakes and hightailed it 65 miles west to the bustling city of Lancaster, PA for a day. Really more like just long enough to have a snack and say, "Eh, no, this won't do.
1: So after tipping their waitress, um, citation needed again, uh, they saddled back up and continued west another 25 miles to York, Pennsylvania, right behind the Susquehanna River. This was in September 1777. They stayed there nine months uh, taking care of business like, you know, the Articles of Confederation, which were basically the first draft of the Constitution. Yeah. It it didn't last. By June 1778, the British were pulling out of Philadelphia again. So the Continental Congress returned. Uh, apparently, the British did not take great care of Independence Hall while, while they were there. Shocker. Um, according to New Hampshire delegate Josiah Bartlett, it was left in a most filthy and sordid situation. You can probably predict what happened next. The Continental Congress was forced to flee again. But if you thought it was the British this time, you would be wrong. The British were forced to surrender in Yorktown in 1781, many thanks to the French for the considerable assistance there. So in 1783, it was none other than... American Continental Army soldiers <laughs> themselves who descended on the Capitol. Uh, but lest you be tempted to draw a parallel to the events of January 6th of this year, it wasn't to overthrow the government. They were they were demanding back pay for their service during the Revolutionary War.
0: In order that further and more effectual measures may be taken for suppressing the present revolt and maintaining the dignity and authority of the United States, Congress ran to the College of New Jersey, uh, also known as Princeton. They stayed there for four months, and incidentally, this was the location of the U.S. Capitol when the American Revolution was formally ended by the signing of the Treaty of Paris. Having learned their lesson, Congress relocated to Annapolis, Maryland in November of 1783, where General Washington resigned to officially become just George Washington, and the Congress ratified the Treaty of Paris. Then they left in August of 1784, further proving that nobody stays in Maryland if they can possibly help it. Facts. (laughs) Facts. We're almost a D.C. folks. Just hang in there. So after Annapolis, they moved to Trenton, New Jersey. And this was made bearable by the fact that they convened in the French Arms Tavern. No joke. Unsurprisingly, very little business of note took place while they were meeting there, aside from the Marquis de Lafayette giving a farewell address. Congress reconvened in 1785 in New York City, and this is where they ratified the U.S. Constitution, and George Washington was officially sworn in as the first president of the United States on April 30th, 1789. However, Congress was unable to quit Philadelphia, and they returned to the city in 1790, where they would remain until 1800, until Washington, D.C. was finally completed, and the U.S. Capitol officially relocated there
1: so important note a lot of people will argue that New York City was actually the first capital of the United States because that's where the Constitution was ratified. Um, eh, there's an argument to be made there, but the United States wasn't necessarily created on that day. I think the Declaration of Independence where they you know declared their independence from the British and said, Hey, we're going to form a country over here would probably, to me, that makes more sense. Yeah. As like, this is when the United States, this is, this is when our capital started being tracked.
0: Right. And if we're Um, talking about a capital being like the seat of a functional government, that's, that's when they started trying to make this functional government happen.
1: So, yeah. So it's a pedantic argument, but I really enjoy knowing, or at least thinking about it as we've had nine (laughs) (laughs) capital cities or capital locations. Um, And so are movements of the capital, since many of those locations were actually Philadelphia, just back and forth. Anyway, this is where we find ourselves today. Uh, When they wrote the U.S. Constitution, it provided for the creation of a seat for the federal government. The Constitution states, the Congress shall have power to exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over such district not exceeding 10 miles square as may, by session of particular states and the acceptance of Congress, become the seat of government of the United States. That's Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17, if you are so inclined to look it up. Basically, this provided for the creation of the site of the new capital by allowing states to cede land upon which to build the capital. This land could not exceed more than 10 square miles and had to be accepted by Congress. I should say, the entirety, the total of the land, could, was not to exceed 10 square miles. And from day one, D.C. has been a hotbed of political maneuvering, sectarian conflict, and a constant battleground for issues of race, national identity, compromise, and power even its location was a source of conflict. Alexander Hamilton and the northern states wanted the federal government to be responsible for the debts accrued during the Revolutionary War, something that the southern states were generally against because it basically consolidated economic power in the northern bankers and financiers. The southern states wanted the capital to be located in an area that was geographically friendly to slaveholding agricultural interests. That way, the government was also serving their interest as well.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So, to satisfy these demands, none other than newly minted President George Washington chose a site nestled between the Potomac and the Anacostia Rivers. Both Maryland and Virginia ceded the land required to form the district, so named to be distinct from the rest of the states. The city was designed by Pierre-Charles L'Enfant, L'Enfant. 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 I don't do a very good French accent. Who, inspired by his native Paris, was responsible for the wide, crisscrossing boulevards and the open, ceremonial spaces around the capital.
1: I would like to state, right now, that I hate Pierre Charles L'Enfant. Oh, everyone thinks he was all clever with his grid and spoke system for the roads, but no. No. He just ended up making a confusing mess... And I don't care how many times a Washingtonian native tells you, it's not that hard to figure out. It is. It is that hard, and I blame l'enfant.
0: Okay, back on track. D.C. was completed in 1800 and has stood as a shining example of governance and brutalist architecture ever since. Well, okay, until the War of 1812, when the British basically burned the place to the ground. White House, Capitol, Library of Congress, and most devastatingly, all of the books in the Library of Congress, which Jefferson was more than happy to replace with his private collection, which he sold to the Library of Congress for a paltry sum of $23,950, and $1815, in $2021, that's $415,320.99. Such a generous guy, old Tommy Jefferson. This raising stunted D.C.'s growth. It shrunk a little bit further in 1847 when the residents of Alexandria elected to leave D.C. due to an imbalance of development between the two sides of the river. Spoiler, this is actually going to be pretty important later. However, the Civil War came to the rescue. Can we say that? Are we allowed to say that?
1: I don't know. It's a weird statement to make, but kind of?
0: (laughs) Kind of? It kick-started the growth of the city again, and slaves owned in D.C. were emancipated on April 16, 1862, which is a full nine months before the Emancipation Proclamation. Naturally, the city became a hub for freed slaves, and to this day, the city boasts a large and vibrant African-American community.
1: The city only continued to grow in the post-war era, rapidly sprawling beyond the boundaries designed by L'Enfant. Therefore... La Infant Plaza. Sorry. I just, that, I remembered somebody saying that to me. Um, <laughs> therefore, the Macmillan plan was enacted to bring L'Enfant's original designs to completion. This plan saw, this plan is what saw the redesign and expansion of the famous National Mall, which is that long stretch of green, basically right in the middle of D.C., where all of the museums and the memorials and the monuments and the Capitol building itself are situated. Uh, D.C. grew through the civil unrest of the 60s and 70s and is currently seeing an influx of residents today, at least according to the tourism people that I got a lot of this background information from. (laughs) The irony in the whole existence of D.C. is that it lacks full self-governance representation in Congress is limited to a non-voting delegate in the House of Representatives and a shadow senator, which sounds like a really cool name for like a villain, but it's really just mostly a glorified observer of congressional bureaucracy. Oh great. In fact, DC residents weren't allowed to vote in presidential elections until 1964. Aha. And yeah and DC didn't even have a mayor until 1973. So I'm going to spoil part of the rest of the episode here. These things are kind of an important point for residents of d c and since it is Pride month after all, I'd just like to point out that d c is one of America's most gay friendly cities hmm. self proclaimed d c claims to right. be one of america's most gay friendly cities there's not like a there's not like an objective measure of that hmm. you know yeah um But D.C. did recognize same-sex marriage in 2010. So you'll recall that the Supreme Court didn't actually rule that it was a right until 2015. So they do have some claim to the title. Yeah,
0: that's cool. I mean, I guess we should probably tell everybody why on earth we're choosing to talk about D.C. statehood right now.
1: Yeah, there's a lot going on in the world. Uh, (laughs) Just like... Belarus's president, Lukashenko, ordered an airliner to be grounded by his jets uh, a couple weeks ago so that he could detain an opposition reporter. Yeah. That's cool. That's happening. You know, the Israel-Palestine conflict is flaring up and at a ceasefire for now. And hopefully it stays that way. But that's dominating the headlines. So why are we talking about this one?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all. A lot of the residents of D.C. are pretty annoyed that they don't have representation in Congress. Like, really, really annoyed. And when you consider all the other things that are going on and the ways in which the United States Congress is involved and the other things happening in the world, they don't don't really have a means to have a say in that. So they're super annoyed about it. The discussion around D.C. statehood is not new, and it has been gaining support recently. Residents of Washington, D.C. pay more in federal taxes than 21 other states and more per capita than all 50 states. Washingtonians still send soldiers to war to die for the country's causes. To many of the proponents of D.C. statehood, the burden of the responsibilities of a state without the benefits of representation are beginning to chafe. Support for D.C. statehood is at an all-time high right now, and H.R. 51, which aims to grant D.C. statehood, passed in the House in April. The White House has come out in favor of D.C. statehood, and so now it sits in the Senate, where Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema are holding it up. Why are they holding it up? Well, remember when we did that episode on the filibuster a few months back? If you don't remember, go listen to it, because you're probably going to be hearing a lot more about the filibuster before too long. Well, neither one of them support eliminating the filibuster, and neither currently co-sponsor the D.C. statehood bill in the Senate. 60 votes would be needed in the Senate to block a filibuster, but Republicans currently stand 100% against D.C. statehood, meaning that 10 Republicans would be needed to make sure the bill isn't filibustered, and they don't likely exist in this timeline. Republicans would filibuster any attempt to vote on the bill, and because filibusters don't currently require a person to actually stand on the Senate floor, which we do explain in that filibuster episode, Republicans can filibuster indefinitely, effectively killing the bill. The short of it is, as long as the filibuster remains in place, the D.C. statehood bill won't pass. It's effectively been pre-filibustered by simple vote math. If Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema came out to end the filibuster, Democrats could call the vote to the floor, and assuming Manchin and Cinema voted in favor of the bill, Vice President Harris would be the tie-breaking vote to grant D.C. statehood. Now, I'm going to put on my prognostication hat and predict that you're going to be hearing that line of reasoning a lot in the next several months.
1: I do want to point out, we <laughs> that was a pretty partisan paragraph. Obviously, we said Republicans are blocking this. Republicans are blocking us. That's not us saying that. That is Republicans saying that. Yeah. That is their stance right now. So that's literally why we're talking about it. it is because this is a partisan issue that has caused a lot of divide and a lot of split. And um, it's going to... I have a feeling it's only going to get more complicated before it gets resolved. Yes. So what would a a... D.C. state actually look like? Not it, it wouldn't honestly be a whole lot different, really, than what we have now. Washington District of Columbia would be renamed Washington Douglas Commonwealth after Frederick Douglass, the abolitionist, social reformer, orator, statesman, and all around Banff who lived in D.C. for the last 17 years of his life. Technically, it would shrink Washington, D.C., and reestablish the existing land as Washington, or sorry, as Washington Douglas Commonwealth. That's due to some technical stuff that we'll kind of get into. Uh, but basically, physically on a map, not a lot would actually change. The state would share the same boundaries uh, as the current district, except for the selected federal land like monuments and the White House and the Capitol building and the the National Mall, et cetera, things like that, Um, that land, that excluded land, would remain the federal seat of power. So that would be the Washington District of Columbia, basically. The biggest changes are that the new state would get two senators and a representative, and therefore three electoral college votes, meaning the residents of the city would finally have congressional representation but there would also be the federal district of columbia or whatever that area those federal lands would be renamed which would also have three electoral votes so creates an interesting dilemma because there could potentially only be one person voting for those three electoral votes which is something that we will talk about more later
0: very intriguing
1: so let's get into it. What are the arguments for why D.C. should become a state and why it should not become a state? I think, Robin, should. you can set us up for this.
0: Yeah, I will, I will start with the affirmative. Uh, yes, Washington, D.C. should be a state. These are the arguments for that anyway. Uh, Washington, D.C. made one hell of a statement in 2000 when they revamped their license plates to feature the slogan, Taxation Without Representation, like right across the bottom. The goal was to send a very clear message and essentially shame Congress into acknowledging that D.C. residents pay more than $20 billion every year in federal taxes, but do not enjoy many of the basic benefits of American citizenship. And I think, rightfully, a lot of people are really pissed about it. In fact, there's an official website created by the local government of Washington, D.C. that features a bullet point list that makes the case for statehood. The list of arguments is long, but the points fall into a few primary categories, representation, autonomy, and equality. So let's tackle them one by one, shall we? We will start with representation.
1: 712,000 people call Washington, D.C. home. That's more than the populations of Vermont, which stands at 624,000, and Wyoming, with only 579,000. Remember, DC pays the highest per capita federal income tax in the United States, and more in total than almost half of the other states in the union. In 2016, that number was something like 26 billion dollars from 712,000 people. That's a
0: lot of money, yo.
1: <laughs> right? I mean, really, that's kind of the hallmark of being a state, or even an American. Right? That's that's the argument that so many people used to justify their right to access the political system. I pay my taxes. We pay our taxes. So we deserve a say in how things are run. And for all the rest of us, that's, that's how it works. That's why we threw all that tea in Boston Harbor and fought a nasty, bloody war and made Jonathan Groff sing possibly the catchiest ditty in all of Broadway musical history, we were, among a few other things, protesting what we believed to be taxation without representation. But despite all the money they hand over to the federal government, the residents of the district have no real or functional representation in the United States government. What they do have is one elected representative at large, Her name is Eleanor Holmes Norton, and at first glance, it may look like she has the same rights and responsibilities as the other representatives with whom she serves. She can serve and vote on committees, even serving as chair. And she receives the same representational allowance as regular members of Congress. Both party caucuses treat delegates as full members, and she can even draft legislation. But what she lacks is a full vote on the House floor.
0: And D.C. has absolutely no representation in the Senate. That shadow senator, he just watches. They don't even have representation on Senate committees. There's no one at the senatorial level that advocates for the interest of the residents of Washington, D.C. And remember, there are a lot of important decisions made at the level of the Senate. D.C. residents don't get a say, and I I put that in quotes because I fully acknowledge that very often my interests as an individual resident of my state are not represented by my state senator. I'm looking at you, Josh Hawley. Hmm. So, But they don't get a say in the leadership of federal agencies, federal court nominations, even within the district. They don't get a say in the nominations for the federal courts in their district. They don't even get to participate in who serves as an ambassador for the country. Even if you put aside the ability to give input on those leadership roles, having representation in the Senate affords states significant benefits, primarily from the ways in which senators are able to effectively obstruct the legislative process, which creates important leverage that they can use to protect their states from perceived harm or angle for potential benefits. And representation in the Senate has special advantages for small states, which D.C. would be if it were a state, because it allows them to go toe to toe, even with the most populated states on level voting ground. Small states are also more likely to score the federal funding that they're seeking. So, yeah, they deserve some representation. Another argument for D.C. statehood is that of autonomy. Thanks to the Constitution and the way it established Washington, D.C., Congress is the boss of the district. And yeah, we mean that in the literal way and also kind of in the spiteful middle school kid way. We'll spare you the back and forth flip-flopping through the history of governance in the district. But to explain what we mean, we're going to zero in on the Home Rule Act of 1973.
1: The Home Rule Act is the direct result of years and years and years of pestering by the residents of Washington, D.C. to have some level of input in the governance of the place where they lived. In 1973, Congress finally gave in, I mean passed, the most expanded form of self-government for Washington, D.C., well, uh, since the district was created. It gave residents the opportunity to elect a mayor and to elect 12 members to the Council of the District of Columbia. Soon after, voters approved the creation of a panel of advisory neighborhood commissioners. And just like that, Washington, D.C. residents had a local government in which they could participate. Except, except no, they don't. (laughs) Even though they have a mayor, Muriel Bowser, in case you didn't already know that, and their very own legislative council, and even the neighborhood commissioners who advise the council, Congress still reviews each and every piece of legislation passed by the council before it can officially become a law. And Congress has authority over the district's budget Essentially, what Washington, D.C. has is a motivated and engaged group of leaders and citizens who determine how they would like their community to be run, but they have no power to actually enact those ideas.
0: And sometimes that looks like your normal, boring congressional bureaucracy. But other times, though, the clashes between D.C. voters and Congress have caught significant national attention, like in the late 1990s when Needle exchange programs were being implemented nationwide in an effort to reduce health risks like infection and hepatitis and HIV and AIDS for people who were battling IV drug addiction. These programs created safe environments in which addicted people could get health care and trade in their used syringes and needles for new sterile ones. In 1998, Congress banned the use of federal funds for these buyback programs because they were afraid that the programs would encourage further drug use. But they said that local municipalities could still use their own funds to run the programs. Well, that is local municipalities that are not Washington, D.C. Despite the fact that the municipal government was interested in creating and running an exchange program, Congress said, no way, Joe. Because they control the district's budget, they refuse to allow the city to use any of its revenue to pay for the programs. But, and here's where the story really reinforces the case advocates of dc statehood in 2007 they changed their tune and when they did the significant impact of programs like that became abundantly clear that year the mayor of dc allocated $650,000 for the department of health to create a network of syringe exchange providers increasing the available providers from one privately funded one to four monica ruiz who is a researcher at george washington university's milken institute of public health wanted to know what kind of impact this change created for public health in D.C., so she did what she does, and she conducted a study. Her research found that in the two years after the Exchange Network was created, the program prevented 120 new cases of HIV and saved a potential $44 million in the cost of care. Now, you might be wondering how one can determine prevented cases of HIV. Statistics and data modeling, my friends— all that math. Her team looked at modeled projections based on years and years of historical data and then saw that the actual numbers came in 120 cases below that expected number. When you determine the cost of care for someone with HIV or AIDS over a lifetime and multiply it by the number of prevented cases, voila, you get that not insignificant $44 million number.
1: That's incredible. And needle exchange programs are (laughs) a whole other issue in their own right. Right. I actually kind of want to do an episode on them. But the important part is allowing the citizens of this territory to self-determine what they want to do to address a problem. Right. Which currently they cannot do in Washington, D.C.
0: Right. And the the point being that, like, had they been able to implement this program when they were initially trying to, could those results could those life-saving results have been replicated on a much more significant scale
1: right i mean that's that's one year worth of you know i don't know how long her study was but she
0: looked at two years
1: two years so two years worth of information if it had started a decade earlier in 98 like what, what an incredible difference that could have made and these things have exponential impacts. As we've discovered with the virus, with the pandemic, right? One person can infect multiple people. Mm-hmm. So for every 120 cases prevented, you could potentially take that model out further over the lifetime of the person with HIV and, and the, the next generations of people that they might infect. And it could be thousands of cases. Yeah. Math math. Anyway, the other, uh, probably one of the hardest, they're all hard hitting arguments. I can't say that. Um, (laughs) Another, another argument that just gets hammered over and over again that we kept running into was this point about equality. So sandwiched in between the bullet points on the reasons to advocate for DC statehood are layers of systemic and explicit racist history. Washington, D.C. is a historically black city, for some of the reasons we discussed in the opening, and black Americans make up 47% of the population. Granting D.C. statehood would make it the only black plurality state in the entire country and reduce the discrepancies in voting power between black and white Americans. But that's such a simplification, and the issues of equality run much deeper in D.C. history. In 1869... In the thick of the Reconstruction period, when individuals and governments were trying to figure out how to put society and the economy back together with all these formerly enslaved black Americans showing up in places where they never had before, when the aftermath of the black codes and the introduction of Jim Crow laws were making it virtually impossible for many black people to create a successful existence for themselves and their families, an interracial board of aldermen passed the most progressive anti-discrimination legislation the country had ever seen or would see again until the 1964 Civil Rights Act. At that time, D.C. area voters had the right to elect a local legislature that could enact laws and levy taxes on real estate to pay for city services. Their local government also included a mayor who is named by the president himself. That obviously got repealed until 1973 when they were allowed to vote for a mayor again. But as is representative of the Times, not everyone supported this kind of action. White conservatives in the city were uncomfortable (laughs) with this expression of black political agency because white voters would be split between Republicans and Democrats, they were afraid that the Black community held the balance of political power. At 30% of the voting population, whoever the Black community supported would win. So they did what any self-respecting political activist group would do. They burned it all down. Figuratively, of course.
0: Right. And their actions directly led to the disenfranchisement of all of Washington, D.C.'s residents because of their efforts to strip the Black community of its political power. Step one, they created a territorial government, or they talked Congress into creating a territorial government. Usually this happens in preparation for territories to become, you know, like actual states, but not here. What this plan did was unify the cities of Washington and Georgetown and replace their previously functional governments— Established a governor appointed by the president, and an 11-member council, and a 22-member assembly, and all that jazz. But that plan was phased out fairly quickly, once the governor spent triple his budget allotment on municipal projects and bankrupted the city. Oof. Yeah. And so he was replaced by a three-member board of commissioners in 1874. This system was ideal for the connected white members of political society in Washington, D.C., The way to solve problems and make shit happen was to network. No voting, no elections, no worries about the dregs of society having a say in what happens to the reasonable and rational. In all reality, white Washington residents were not at all disenfranchised when it came to the workings of their hometown. Sure, navigating that system was inconvenient, but to them, it was the lesser of two evils. From a Washington Post editorial in 1878, commenting on the difficulties of the commissioner-based governance, and I quote, the president form of alien government is about as bad as to be devised, but a system which gives the control of the district to ignorant and depraved Negroes is still worse. Cool.
1: Mm.
0: And... As the country as a whole wrestled with race massacres and segregation and lynchings, and people across the country participated in efforts to shape the way that others in their cities, states, and even the United States as a whole were treated based on the color of their skin, the Black residents of Washington, D.C. continued to be disempowered to advocate for themselves at a local or federal level. Even today, under the D.C. Home Act, they have no practical way to affect the way that their city operates or to be represented in the way that other Americans are. For many fighting this fight, advocating for the statehood of Washington, D.C. is synonymous with advocating for racial equality.
1: You know, we, uh, our first episodes were on systemic racism, and we spent a lot of time sort of stressing the point that racism isn't always overt. Right. And that systemic racism especially wasn't necessarily an overt sort of thing. Uh, but this would be one of those cases where it was 100% right. overt. Like, this, this is like, this is exactly the kind of systemic racism that people say doesn't exist.
0: Yeah. And it it's like, and it's like built into the functionality of Washington, D.C.
1: Yeah. It's literally in black and white. Yeah. When,
0: when you get to the point where, like, the Washington Post, your local newsletter, says, yeah, this is bad, but, I mean, shh, otherwise we let black people have a say.
1: Like, I know, right? Wow, what a horrible <sighs> thing. Yeah. I mean, dang. Dang. Dang.
0: Okay, so why don't you, though, make this solid and strong case against D.C. statehood, unless you have something else to say. I,
1: I have one more thing to say. And it's something that catches me every time voting and minority communities comes up. And we saw it right here in the logic behind why they screwed all of D.C.'s governance up. And that's that minority communities vote as a block. Mm. Because the logic was, well, white voters are going to be Republican and Democratic. But black voters are going to be all one or all the other. And that assumption is so racist. Oh my God, so racist. It takes me off anytime I hear it's 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 one of the things that the Democratic Party does all the time that I just it makes me clench my teeth because they're like, well, you know, we can depend on the black vote or the Latino vote mm-hmm. or or whatever minority vote. And it's just like, no, you cannot. right. Because all of these people are people. They're not some monolithic, Agent with a million heads and one brain, right? It's like, ah, oh, could we not do that? Could we assume, could all of us, both political parties, assume that we have to make logical and reasoned arguments to get the votes of everybody and not just white people because we assume the black people are going to support us or aren't going to support us or whatever it is? Right. Mm. Also, could
0: you stop angling for us as a whole? Because what I need yeah. as a black person in Southwest Missouri is very different than what a black person in Chicago needs. And I'm going to vote right. differently than a black person in Chicago on different issues because that's what it is. So please stop angling for all of us at one time.
1: Just treat people like people. So crazy. Weird. Wow. Individuals are individual. Um, anyway, that's not the point of this particular post. It just that one <laughs> triggered me. So, here I go. Gonna make this, um... (laughs) I'm going to make the best argument that I can. I have written the best argument that I could find against D.C. statehood.
0: Wow us. Convince us.
1: Go. I will be trying. That is... I guarantee I'm trying. (laughs) As one may imagine, there are considerable arguments against adding (laughs) D.C. as the 51st state. The primary argument is that making D.C. a state would go against the Founders' intent. James Madison wrote, (coughs) The indispensable necessity of complete authority at the seat of government carries its own evidence with it. Without it, not only the public authority might be insulted and its proceedings interrupted with impunity, but a dependence of the members of the general government on the state Comprehending the seat of government for protection in the exercise of their duty might bring on the National Council an imputation of awe or influence equally dishonorable to the government and dissatisfactory to the other members of the Confederacy. I'm just I should just leave it at that because I mean, obviously, that's clear as day right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Allow me to translate. Please do. In modern speak, Madison was basically saying that the seat of the federal government needed to be independent of any state because the representatives from any state that also held the federal government as part of its government, as part of it, right, would hold outsized power compared to the other members. So, one, their physical proximity to the capital could lend such members of Congress more influence just by proximity. They are around more. They are able to campaign in their local areas and in the federal uh, circuit at the same time, right? So that is, that is a handicap if you have to fly all the way out to, say, Hawaii after, <laughs> after you've had your senatorial vote. Um, but more importantly and really at the core of what Madison was writing, is it would stand to reason that the state that hosted the seat of federal power would also be responsible for the protection of Congress. So any member of Congress that represented the host state could simply threaten to remove or lessen or hold up protections to Congress itself and thereby, thereby force their own will through Congressional proceedings, right? Remember, the idea for an independent seat of federal power was formed after that revolt that we talked about, where the revolutionary soldiers attacked Philadelphia. Madison was riding from that place, and he didn't want that to happen again. He didn't want the the seat of federal power to be at the mercy of a state government sending aid to defend it. So an independent seat would allow the federal government to essentially provide for its own protection. If the physical size of the district became too small, it would be unable to provide this protection because eventually your your physical, say, forces or your magazines, whatever you would need to protect the capital, would eventually have to be stored in a state at some point, and you would still be held up by that state. So that's one of the arguments to maintain a independent district of a certain size. The next argument, and the one that I hear most often brought up first, so it's usually like the foremost argument, um, is that making a state out of D.C. would be unconstitutional. Remember, we addressed how the Constitution outlined the ceding of land by states to form the federal seat of power. What is less clear is how land can leave the District of Columbia. Opponents to D.C. statehood argued that it isn't clear that Congress can just give land away from D.C. The admissions clause, which is what gives Congress the power to admit new states, Um, it outlines how Congress can do that, can create a new state, but there's no, no provisions for expulsion of a state or secession of land for a state. And then furthering that problem is that in Texas v. White, which was an 1868 Supreme Court case, the Supreme Court ruled that once a territory officially becomes a state within the United States, the relationship is indissoluble, which it was a very important ruling because it meant that the states that seceded from the union in the civil war were still states of the union. It's what basically allowed them to rejoin the union without having basically a whole bunch of congressional gymnastics and votes and stuff like that. Um, because it basically said you can't leave the union to begin with. So you can say all you want that you're no longer part of the United States, uh, but you, uh, but you are. Hmm. Um, so some scholars have argued that that same logic applies to DC. So just as a state can enter the union, but never leave, so too can land enter the district, but never be given away. Hmm specifically because there's no provision for how that would happen within the Constitution, and the Constitution is what explicitly grants power to the federal government. We have a, a, an affirmative power, basically. All powers that are not enumerated in the Constitution explicitly given to the federal government are reserved for the state. It's not the other way around. The Constitution doesn't limit power by saying what the federal government can't do It limits it by saying what it can do.
0: This line of logic seems to fly in the face of the fact that Virginia reclaimed the land it ceded in 1846. However, this retrocession was actually challenged in the Supreme Court. Of course, it was challenged by an Alexandria resident trying to avoid paying state taxes to Virginia. In the 1875 case, Phillips v. Payne. The Supreme Court at the time stopped short of ruling that retrocession was legal and simply stated that it was settled fact and stopped from raising the question as to the validity of the retrocession. Because the Supreme Court didn't explicitly say that the act of retrocession was constitutional, some people still argue that the point is open for debate and that the reclamation of land by Virginia 175 years ago may have been illegal the same admissions clause that makes it difficult to determine if the land could be given away, it also raises a question about who would give permission for the state of Washington Douglas Commonwealth to be established on the proposed land. The admissions clause states that no state can be formed from the land of another state without the original state's permission. Basically, the government can't go in, split a state in half, and make a new state with a whole new state government, congressional representatives, and full self-governance unless the original state is like, yeah, that's cool but who would give permission for the state of Washington, D.C. to be formed on the land which it occupies? Originally, that land was ceded by Maryland, but others argue that Maryland permanently relinquished claims to that land, meaning that Congress would have to give permission, but that power isn't specifically enumerated by the Constitution, bringing us squarely back to the first issue. Either way, the resolution would probably lead to a battle in the Supreme Court. And the final, official argument against D.C. statehood has to do with the 23rd Amendment and everyone's favorite crazy system, the Electoral College. The 23rd Amendment, passed in 1960 and ratified in 1961, finally gave citizens residing in Washington, D.C. the right to vote for presidential electors. D.C. is given electoral votes equivalent to the same amount of electoral votes in the smallest state in the U.S., which, in simple terms, means the D.C. gets three electoral votes. For a better explanation of the Electoral College, give a listen to our previous episode on the Electoral College. Now, the only residence in what would be the new, much smaller federal seat of power of Washington, D.C., would likely be the White House. Maybe the vice president's residence, depending on how they cut things up. Either way, this means that the president would basically be able to send three electoral votes to whoever they voted for, no matter what. Which creates some obvious problems with bias right off the bat, but it would also create a constitutional crisis, as Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2 of the Constitution says that no person holding an office of trust or profit under the United States can be appointed to be an elector you know, the people who actually go and cast the vote for the next president of the United States. If the president lived alone in the White House, nobody who actually lived in the district could serve as an elector, since the only person living in the district would be the president.
1: And this isn't a historical impossibility, really. Uh, President Truman's wife, Elizabeth Virginia Truman, aka Bess, Bess Truman, she spent at least as much time in Independence, Missouri, as she did at the White House. I know colloquially, I remember being taught that she lived in independence because she didn't like politics all that much. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure if that's true, uh, but historically, President Truman lived alone for much of his presidency. And also, they would have three electoral votes to assign, and each three, elec- I mean, each electoral vote gets an elector, right? It's not one person, mm-hmm. multiple electoral votes. So even if the president didn't li- lived at the house, if it were just like um, the president and Jill Biden and I, you know, and the vice president and his wife, uh, sorry, and her husband, excuse me, Kamala Harris's uh, husband. Um, Even if, you know, all four of them lived in this hypothetical federal district, so it would still technically be Dr. Biden and Doug Emhoff, as the only like potential electors, and there's still one that's open, so like <laughs> you know, there's a lot of. It's a weird sort of constitutional crisis, um, but it would still be one, right? It mm-hmm. would be explicitly against the constitution for the president or the vice president to represent an elector for the district, right? Um, Work
0: would have to be done.
1: Work would have to be done. And there are a couple other unofficial arguments that nevertheless managed to make it into just about every write-up I could find. Um, One is that the new state of Washington, Douglas Commonwealth, would be small. And I'm not sure why that matters particularly, but opponents seem aghast at the idea (laughs) that a state would be a mere 68 square miles, which I found very interesting to me because D.C., is limited by Cong- or by the Constitution to only be 10 square miles. So currently, right? I think it exists in a state of uh, unconstitutionality to begin with. But I, I am sure that there is some legal thing that I just didn't have time or inclination to look up because it wasn't important enough for this. Um, but yeah, so there's a lot of arguments about, oh, it'd just be so small. It'd be a very small state. It just totally ignores the fact that by population, it would be larger by, than both Wyoming and Vermont, which we discussed earlier. Right. And opponents also argue – we're getting it more into opinion area, uh, folks. Yeah. I have these last opinion two – Opinion flag. Yeah, these last two arguments are obviously a little less solid. Um, opponents, they also argue that the new state would be highly partisan. So in 2020, Donald Trump received 70% of the vote in Wyoming. By comparison, Joe Biden received 93% of the vote in what would become the state of Washington Douglas Commonwealth. So there are, and there are also no elected officials in D.C. that are Republicans. They're all Democrats. And therefore, it could potentially be the only state in the United States with only one political party in the state legislature. So, Hmm. It would be interesting. Now, I've tried really hard to present the best arguments that I could against D.C. statehood here. But this last point especially keeps coming up about how biased it would be, how biased it would be. And it seems to me that this gives away the game. Like, this shines a light on the whole reason that the Republicans are 100% against this. And all of the other arguments have been made to, to justify being against this so they didn't have to rely on this one point. The the Republican Party is basically the opposition to DC statehood at this point. Like it the if you want the the two are synonymous right now. And the one point they keep bringing up is how this would just give the Democrats more power and representation in Congress. It's just a power grab. They're only doing this for power. And it just seems like Obviously a partisan defense aimed at keeping the opposition party disenfranchised. Like, call me crazy, but the political leanings of an American citizen shouldn't be taken into consideration when determining whether or not they deserve the right to exercise sorry, whether or not they deserve to exercise their constitutionally guaranteed rights, including representation in Congress. And you're not helping your argument by implying that 70% bias is fine when the bias is in your favor in Wyoming, but a 93% bias is not okay when it's against you in D.C. Like, I understand that those are vastly different numbers, but 70% is still a dominant bias that basically ensures that that party, whichever one it favors, is the one running that state. Yeah. So... What is the real argument there? Why right why, y, mm.
0: And to be fair, to be right fair. like there's there's no chance that if we were to flop the names of the political parties here, that we wouldn't be having this same conversation. This right. is a microcosm reflection of the polarization of political parties in the United States when one party would deny representation and the full functionality of citizenship to a group of people in order to shaft somebody else out of political power. Like that's where we're at. And that's the crux of this whole argument.
1: And it doesn't matter what party you're in. You should be upset by that. Like a true, I'm, man, I'm falling into a trap here, but no true Republican would argue to disenfranchise somebody because they disagreed with that person. That, right. is, that is an antithesis to the values that Republicans purport to have.
0: Right. The individual rights and representation and the full functionality of citizenship and, you know, no overreach by... The government. By governing parties. Yeah. Like, that's, that's the whole M.O., man.
1: And it's just... Uh, it irks me. It does i would also like to point out that most of the arguments against it are rather facile uh, with like any any they're just simple and easily overcome through any sort of thought the one about dc needing to be a certain size in order to provide for its defense january mm-hmm. 6th pretty much demonstrated that the capital as it currently stands is not capable of defending itself. Right. And at the time they reached out, DC reached out to both Virginia and Maryland to dispatch help the national guard. So why would it be any different for the federal seat of power to reach out to the Washington Douglas Commonwealth for aid in a time of crisis? How is that any different? It's not. It's not. It's just the federal seat of power reaches out to a state. And if that's all you need to hear, then it doesn't matter where the federal seat of power is, what size it is, and it doesn't matter which state it is, because that's all that is happening in either scenario. And if it's okay now, and if it's necessary now, it'll be okay and necessary in the future. So the argument falls apart because of the very actions taken by the party that stands against it. And that is... Anybody who comes up here and says that the whole operation was a democratic thing or that I am being unnecessarily biased by saying that needs to go back and review the footage because those people were clearly there in support of one political party. Right. Uh,
0: I mean, it's that's settled at this point, at least in my opinion, like that's not even an argument that that can be made.
1: The other arguments about who can get permission for the uh, for the land and uh, the 23rd Amendment. First of all, H.R. 51 applies, uh, calls for uh, either a rapid method to repeal the 23rd Amendment, which would be difficult. Uh, but there's also other solutions that are fairly elegant. You know, the president can't determine who the electors go to, right? The president just gets a vote as a citizen or something. And then the electors go to the winner of the popular vote. So you get to appease some of the crowd that say that the popular vote should determine the next president because the Mm -hmm. popular vote winner automatically gets three electors right off the bat, which I don't think is insane. I think it's at least a step in the right direction. And you ensure that the the president can't exert undue power on that. And you don't have to repeal an entire amendment. You just, I don't know. There's a lot of solutions that don't require the complete revocation of an amendment or, or a president having complete control over three electors, which I don't think is okay. Right. Um, I mean, at the
0: end of the day, like, yes, it would be complicated from a constitutional perspective and from a legislative perspective. Right. But the entire job of the United States Congress is to solve complicated problems according to the legislative process. Like, it can be done. We have amended the Constitution 23 times at this point. Is it 23 amendments?
1: I can't. I think it might be more than that.
0: Like, like we can do the work.
1: Yeah. My point is
0: that 27 amendments.
1: 27 amendments, yeah.
0: My point is that we can do the work.
1: Exactly. To figure it out if we want to. That's what these arguments boil down to. It would be hard. So do the work. Right. But get our fellow Americans the representation that they are promised by our Constitution. Right. And interesting point of fact, by the way, for the first 10 years of D.C.'s existence, uh, the citizens of D.C. had representation in Congress. They did. It wasn't until 1800 that they lost their ability to vote for president and— lost their representation in congress go figure
0: yeah we can figure it out
1: yeah anyway before we harp on this and completely undermine any credibility that we might have (laughs) um i'm gonna let people know how they can tell us whether or not dc should be a state Yeah, it doesn't mean anything. But if you agree or disagree with us, uh, you can find us so many ways. You can find us on social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, at Fireside Breakdowns. Just search for it and we will pop up. Um, You can email us, firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com. It would be great if you think we just got it so wrong that you have to type up a well-sourced and compelling argument against what we've said. And we will read that. You could leave us a review. Now, I did say last week, and I'm going to continue saying, if you want to leave us a review right now, and you know that if you don't do it now, it's not going to happen, do it. Leave the review. Well, there'll never be a bad thing. If, however, you keep intending on leaving us a review, and you just keep running out of time, hold on to it for a second, because we're going to have a drive where we have reviews, hopefully, from our listeners. And there will be more information coming up on that. We don't have exact dates yet, but once we do, we will give you the date. We will give you the week for the for the drive, or maybe two weeks for the review drive, and you can put it on your calendar and and it will be a thing. Yes. Start yeah. planning now. For a indeterminate point in the future.
0: <laughs> well, like maybe think about it in the shower, like think about what you would say in your yeah, review yeah. so that when the time comes, you're ready to just like do it
1: yeah just copy and pa- you can pre-write it and then copy and paste it and send it and it'll only take a few seconds when the time comes yes. just an idea it would gra- It benefit us greatly and also we would love you forever probably um unless you leave a one-star review in which case that is your right and you know we'd support freedom of speech but we'd rather you didn't just send us a nasty email and keep it between us
0: <laughs> yeah maybe we could change your mind
1: maybe um so, Robin, I think it's time for some some good news. What we I got love good news. I do, too. I
0: love good news. It is LGBTQ plus Pride Month in the United States, and we wanted to find a way to acknowledge that in our episodes this month without engaging in, I guess you would call it performative celebration. Mm. That's not what we do here. We fully, fully recognize that it takes real hard work to support marginalized communities, Uh, So we would like to take time in our episodes to do the thing we do best and note some good news about important issues that affect the LGBTQ plus community. This week, we learned about a study out of Scandinavia that found that suicide rates fell by 46% after gay marriage was legalized in Sweden and Denmark. Researchers from the Danish Research Institute for Suicide Prevention and from Stockholm University worked together to complete the study, which compared suicide rates for people in same-sex and heterosexual relationships from 1989 to 2002, and then from 2003 to 2016. And between those two periods, the number of suicides in same-sex unions fell by 46%, and those in heterosexual unions fell by 28%. Which means, number one, they were doing some good work on suicide prevention, but number two, that definitely outpaces. And so that was a huge win for the LGBTQ plus community in Scandinavia.
1: That is awesome. I hope we can see an increasing uh, better world for our LGBTQ plus friends here in the United States and of course globally. Uh, Something that Robin and I strive to help create here. That's what we do. You want to take us out? I do. Awesome.
0: We are so excited that you took the time to listen this week. We hope that you learned some great new things about DC statehood and that we helped you come to a conclusion about how you feel about the topic. We will be back again with you next week talking about something equally as important. And until that time, take care of each other.